about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it, who should receive it, and maybe a couple who shouldn't. I'm Christine Sear. I'm Brian Tuft. And I'm Clay Russell. And we rehearsed this many times, as you uh, can so tell. much. So smooth. I couldn't remember if we went first name or last name. I was like, well, R comes before T. Mm, oh yeah, yeah, well, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> struggle bus, for sure. Uh, oh. So episode five, guys. We're going to, um, we got some exciting stuff in store for you today, including Brian's profile of medal recipient, Tennessee Williams, or as it's we like It's the Olympics. Call him. It's all about the medals. Yes. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So are these, are the, um, presidential medals, what actual medal are they? Are they gold? Are they bronze? They're gold. Yeah, they're gold. <gasps> Plated or solid? Yeah, there are no, there are no silver or bronze medalists in the Medal of Freedom. You either have it or you don't, you know? And it has, like, a pretty, like, neckless part, whereas I feel like yeah. sometimes the Olympic medals, they look shitty, like, the color's ugly, or, like, there was <laughs> right. that, I think it was, like, 2018, where the logo was ugly, like, I wouldn't want yeah. that hanging from my neck. I think the logo's kind of cute this year. Well, that's because no one is there, so, of course, like, they overperformed this year when there's no one there. Yeah, I I have watched nothing of the Summer Olympics at all. Does that make me not like a bad American if I don't watch the Olympics? Well, I think it makes you a bad international citizen because it's not an American event. But um, I will say the only thing that I've seen is I follow Gus Kenworthy on Instagram, and he's posted videos of some of the events that he's attended with Adam Rippon because they're like Winter Olympians doing correspondence stuff for NBC. And cool. the who is Gus Kensworthy for people that don't know? Uh, he is a very hot Olympian who I think skis. And uh, okay, he was on the cover of the ESPN Body Issue. Uh, big fan of his work. He was on American Horror Story. Um, I definitely know wow. him more as like a gay person than an Olympian. <laughs> a real <laughs> Renaissance but, um, man. Yeah. Truly, yes. Uh, <laughs> like you yeah. know more about his body than the sport. That a he Renaissance actually... man in like Ryan Murphy's America. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. yeah. But. Um, the videos that he's posted have been, like, uh, they remind me of, like, when Lenny Kravitz was watching Jennifer Lawrence and the Hunger Games, because it's just, like, an empty arena and, like, one person clapping and, like, that's it. And <laughs> it's so dark. And then, like, it's they'll, so like, weird. pan up from, like, wherever they're, you know, like, if they're performing in the gymnastics, they're performing in the diving pool, he'll, like, pull up and you can see everything is empty around them. And I'm just like, ooh, this... It it does it doesn't feel spirited, you know. No, not at all. Bring me back to not 2012 when we got to see Victoria Beckham dance on the top of a London taxi cab. That was <laughs> that was the peak. Oh my god, that opening ceremony! <laughs> London did it right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I agree. 
London when the, did a when good that job. giant like two story Voldemort was scaring those children and during the opening, like that was that's what I want. Scaring children, yeah. Victoria Beckham. That's the that's the Olympics I want to be a part of. High camp. What more could you want? <laughs> and then I don't even know what we got. Like Naomi Osaka running up a staircase. That's all I know. She did get to light the torch. Yes, that was that was cool. Mm-hmm. She, it's a big year for her. She's like walking away from opens. She's lighting the torch. She's co-host. She's co-chairing the Met Gala. <gasps> I didn't know that. And yeah, she has she's a like Netflix. Four, it's like her and like Timothy Chalamet. Um, oh. It's like it's good people this year. Yeah, yeah. I uh, little uh, message to the viewers: We are having a Limbaugh offsite. Uh, we're all going to the U.S. Open. And, uh, yeah, when we get there, I'm going to hightail it to the practice courts, which are kind of secluded, because I'm hoping that Osaka is going to be there when we're there. Ooh, that would be fun. Right. You know what we'll do? We'll just, uh, we'll bring our mics and we'll do a live show right from the open. Mm. There's literally no way that could go wrong. Not at all. Yeah. And we all know how much uh, Naomi Osaka enjoys being interviewed as well. Yes, Mm, yes, yes. mm -hmm. Maybe we'll put on a French accent just to, like, see if we can really stir up some drama. <laughs> I can't do it. Come on, uh, play tennis. I can't do it. What is the truth? Um, so then another thing that I want to talk about was that here in, in uh, the Big Apple, we woke up last week to a, like, oppressive smoke cloud over the city which turned the sun into this creepy red thing and um the air quality in new york city was the worst it's been in 17 years which i actually read was actually a promo event for the release of dune this christmas (laughs) (laughs) guerrilla marketing at its finest uh amazing has me excited oh i'm i'm there opening day yeah um, all right. So last thing, um, does anyone have anything to apologize for from last episode? I, uh, I wanted to talk about just, uh, the billionaires deciding to leave earth to show off, uh, they're, they're not paying taxes to go into space. Uh, but I don't know, maybe I'll save it for whenever we profile another astronaut. I, I will say though, um, the hype and the buildup for them going to space was so massive. And I kind of feel like 11 minutes in space is like me telling people like, oh, I've been to Turkey because I was at the airport for a layover. Like, it's just it's not, not even not, 11 minutes. It's not, not, even, not even. It was like four goddamn minutes. Like they were. Well, they were like in space proper for four minutes, but they right. were outside yeah. of the Earth's atmosphere for 11 so, like, essentially the seven and a half minutes that we're not accounting for were, like, being on the highway. They were, like, stuck in traffic on the exit ramp. Yeah. I, I feel like in 1961, when Alan Shepard uh, got to that height, yeah, he was in space, sure. But I feel like we need to change the definition to if you are in orbit around Earth, you're in space. If not, you are on a glorified uh, roller coaster ride. The other, most like the, to me personally, as a very vapid and flawed individual, the most embarrassing part for me for Jeff Bezos was how shitty his fillers looked. And I want to take a crack at this. And I think it's because he doesn't have any famous friends. Like Richard Branson has that like billionaire's island where I think they like hunt poor people. And like, (laughs) they all go. Like he's like, you'll see him hanging with like a President Obama, Naomi Campbell, uh, and Emma Bunton to bring it Kate back to the Winslet. Spice Girls. Like 
all of these rich British people will go to this island, and I'm I'm I feel that they're telling him like, oh no, darling, don't go there. Go here. See Hazel. She's gonna do beautiful fillers on you. And like I, with the exception of that one time that Jeff Bezos got invited to the um, Academy Award party that Vanity Fair throws, and I think it's mm-hmm. because um, Manchester by the Sea was nominated, so they they had to you know slip him the invitation. I've never seen him interact with famous people. And I think that that's yeah. why, like, essentially it looks like he got his fillers done at the mall. And mm. that's fine. If you're getting your cosmetic surgery at the mall, that's okay. But don't go on CBS This Morning with Gail King with fillers from the mall. Splurge for the good fillers, you know? You're if you're the gonna richest sit with, man with, on the planet. With Oprah's best friend, right. you need to look good. She looks great. I'm not saying she's had fillers, but Gail King is bringing it to you every morning at 7 a.m. You can't show up looking... You know, like a little less essentially puffy. You That's went all to we're be saying. Like the supercuts of plastic surgery, right? You don't ask your lawyers where to go for plastic surgery. You you have enough famous friends to know. Even Elon Musk knows like more famous people, right? I'm not saying he looks great, but you know, like it doesn't look terrible. I think it was just a mix of that and the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots. I was just like, just no. Just everything about that. I thought that Richard Branson would be as uncomfortable as it got. But no, Jeff Bezos, you got to hand it to him for being number one, for actually topping him in terms of grossness. Whether then, it is, yeah, just, uh, you know, putting a uh, early female astronaut who was denied a chance to go into space because she was a woman next to a rich teenager who, uh, you know, five minutes beforehand didn't even know he was going to space. That or saying at the press conference, hey, uh, my Amazon workers paid for this, uh, this space flight. So thanks. I so. know. I know. So all of that is the inserting of the dagger, but the twisting of the dagger is when the price tag came out for him to take this layover to space, and then it came out that Mackenzie, his ex-wife, had donated like $8 billion to all of these different charities, including a bunch to historical black universities and colleges, and I was just like, damn, like he embarrassed himself, but you humiliated him, and that's the kind of energy you need to be bringing post-divorce. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, she won the divorce, hands down. A hundred percent. Yeah. Early, early medal of the week winner goes to Mackenzie Bezos. Forever. Congratulations, sweetie. We we have no choice but to stand. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, on a Mackenzie standing note, um, let's, uh, let's dive into it. We'll be back right after the break with, uh, Brian's Tennessee Williams, um, expose. Do we call it an expose, Brian? I'm not exposing anyone. I think everything I'm about to tell you, you already know. Nice. Oh, okay. Well, Brian, you're supposed to find, like, fun. Ow. What we'll happened? Did you just injure yourself on air? I just... <laughs> yeah. I just banged my funny bone on the chair. Oh. Guys, um, it's okay. I'm looking at Christine right now. She's not bleeding and she's conscious. It's okay. We're good. I'm going to power through. Um, For now. But before we go, don't forget to follow us at Limbaugh Podcast on Twitter.com. And leave us a review. Preferably five stars. Um, anything we'll less than that. Uh, I mean, a four, <laughs> like... Five episodes in, I feel like four stars is respectable. All right, fine. Yeah. If it's a one star, you have to write at least 500 words about what you don't like about us. Mm-hmm. 
And if any of it is Rush Limbaugh is not on this podcast, keep it. We we, we don't want to hear it. <laughs> yes, that's all we want. I mean, that's this entire thing is one massive troll. And as soon as that happens, like we're shutting it down. Uh, I love it. We're like, we did it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, guys. Tennessee Williams. When we're back. So last episode, um, we had kind of talked about uh, the diversity of metal recipients and um, possible future metal recipients. And we had a conversation about uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community who have received the medal. And Clay uh, kind of put me on the spot and asked me if there was anyone other than Ellen DeGeneres. And we've already mentioned one of the other um, LGBT uh, recipients, Billie Jean King, when we were talking about our trip to the U.S. Open. But I kind of wanted to give a rundown of... It's not a long list. Uh, it's longer than I thought it was going to be, but um, essentially uh, it's Alvin Alley, Rachel Carson, Aaron Copland... Ellen DeGeneres, Vladimir Horowitz, Jasper Johns, Billie Jean King, Lincoln Kirsten, Margaret Mead, Harvey Milk, who I mistakenly had said last week I wish had been alive to receive the medal. Um, he did receive it. Unfortunately, it was posthumously. Uh, he received it in 2013. Um, Antonia Pajota, Sally Ride, Bayard Rustin, Stephen Sondheim, Van Clyborne, Thornton Wilder, and our profile today, Tennessee Williams. Um, what I will say before we jump into Tennessee is there are one, two, three, four presidents who have not uh, received or did never awarded a medal to an LGBTQ plus member of the community. Do you want to guess who those four presidents are? One of them <gasps> is very obvious. I think the other three are less so. Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump knows zero gay people. <laughs> That's why his hair looks like that. Mm, and his uh, Clinton? Mm -mm. No? Clinton gave out two. Jimmy Carter. Uh, no, Jimmy Carter gave out three, including the one we're talking about today. Oh, God, I should have known that. Um, wow, okay. No, I would have just guessed uh, just the way that you framed it, uh, that it would have been a Democratic president, but I guess not. Uh, so I was surprised to find out that Kennedy gave out one to a member of the community. Um, so Trump gave out zero. Herbert Walker Bush gave out zero. Ford gave out zero. And less surprisingly, Nixon uh, gave out zero to the queers. Um, I feel like but... that's not that surprising. <laughs> I, when I found out that Johnson and Kennedy were both like, here we go, like in the 60s, when it was just like, let's have a, a lavender marriage of convenience, um, I was <laughs> kind of like, wow, I didn't see this coming. But, you know, I mean, okay. Kennedy didn't even bother showing up to the medal ceremony, and he still was able to award he a member of the dead. community. Poor form, poor form. Tomato, tomato. 
Uh, but today we are here to talk about Tennessee Williams, uh, born March 26th, my birthday, 1911, <gasps> as Thomas Williams in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, he left God's Green Earth on February 25th, 1983 in New York, New York. Um, I figured we'd kind of go over the professional history of Tennessee Williams before uh, we talk about his personal life, um, both because his personal life is really what makes him, you know, gay, and also because <laughs> Clay and Christine have an incredible, incredible paragraph from his Wikipedia page that needs to be heard to be believed. Um, and we have to have a contest to do it, too. Yes, they're very competitive. It's Leo season, baby. Um, At 33 years old, after years of obscurity, Williams found success and fame with the opening of The Glass Menagerie in 1944. Uh, It's a play that actually tells a story about a very unhappy family that is based on or at least reflects his own family dynamics. And the play was the first in a string of smash successes. Uh, It goes Glass Menagerie, Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Sweet Bird wow. of Youth, and The Night of the Iguana. Um, like, just like back to back to back to back. Uh, the character of Amanda Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie is based pretty much, like, shot for shot on Edowina Williams, who is his mother. And the sister character uh, in The Glass Menagerie is based on his sister, which we'll get to in a second. Um, his later work, he kind of switched things up and it kind of composed in a new style and it did not translate to a widespread audience. Um, so after those like five barn burners, there was less and less success. <laughs> most of William's most acclaimed work has been adapted to motion pictures starring actors like Kirk Douglas, Marlon Brando, Vivian Lee, Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman, and Deborah Kerr, which I think actually kind of sounds like he was writing his own version of the rap interlude from Madonna's Vogue. Um, (laughs) shortly before his death, he was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame. And in 1980, he was honored by President Jimmy Carter with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of two medals that Carter awarded to gay people. We love Jimmy Carter. Best, best living president we have. Fight me. Who was the other recipient? Uh, I can pull them up. It's two lesbians. Um, Margaret Mead in 1979. And where's my other Carter? Uh, Rachel Carson in 1980. So uh, Hmm. she received it alongside Tennessee. Um, I love this show because we get to find out about these people. Like, I don't really know anything about either of those other two uh, recipients. So, yeah, for future episodes. What's funny is um, I have some notes that I can share with you, Clay, and we can put them in the show notes, where I put an asterisk next to people who were publicly out when they received the medal or at least at maybe not the time where they had achieved medal status, but when they were awarded it, like, um, Sally ride, uh, was awarded by Obama and Mm -hmm. she lived her life in private as a lesbian with a partner. And her partner actually received the medal on her behalf because she had passed away before the, uh, the ceremony, but Sally ride never, she wasn't known for being a lesbian while she was alive. It only came out mm-hmm. after her death. Um, so I did kind of break that down where I was kind of like, okay, this person was publicly out and there are uh, more times than not everyone else who Carter gave a medal to um, all three of them. Uh, Tennessee Williams was the only like openly, or at least it was like an open secret that he was a homosexual for the time. Um, yeah. So first son born to his family his mother was a prim woman who hated sex. 
His father was a womanizer, whose son would follow suit with men. And his sister Rose, who was very close with him during the Great Depression, was diagnosed as a schizophrenic and later lobotomized. I'm going to hand it over to Christine and Clay, who are going to read you a dramatic excerpt from Tennessee's Wikipedia. I am ready to go. Brian, just say who should read the first sentence. Clay, you start us off. As a young child, Williams nearly died from a case of diphtheria that left him weak and virtually confined to his house during a period of recuperation that lasted a year. (laughs) God damn it, Clay. (laughs) At least in part, as a result of this illness, he was less robust as a child than his father wished. Cornelius Coffin Williams, also known as C.C. Williams, a descendant of hardy East Tennessee pioneer stock, had a violent temper and was a man prone to use his fists. He regarded what he thought was the son's effeminacy with disdain. Edwana, locked in an unhappy marriage, focused her attention almost entirely on her frail young son. Many critics and historians note that Williams drew from his own dysfunctional family in much of his writing. So Brian, you get to award it. Who won? Uh, Clay, I mean, you you really, you went for it. Like, Thank you so yeah, much. I don't. Thank you. I haven't Thank seen you. somebody read Tennessee Williams-esque dialogue with such passion since I saw Vivian Lee do it. I, uh, I so. was going for uh, the voice of the rooster in Looney Tunes. I don't even know his name. Foghorn uh, Leghorn? So it was a little Foghorn Leghorn, but it was mostly Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. Uh, just <laughs> nice. Like, spade is spade. Cringe. Thank you. Thank you. So obviously, um, with this kind of dysfunctional upbringing, uh, it should not be surprised. Uh, his mother was conservative and his father um, did not. Um, and by conservative, I don't mean she was a Republican. I mean, uh, she was very prim and did not believe that uh, sex had a place in your life. Um, <laughs> and his what father uh, kind of resenting him for his effeminacy. Um, he grew up very conflicted about sex and sexuality and sexual pleasure. And some sources that I've found online uh, claim that Tennessee Williams did not masturbate until well into his 20s. And once he became a public figure, he was closeted for a time, eventually telling friends and over time becoming more um, voracious in his pursuits of younger men. Mm-hmm. And then on to hustlers. And this is my favorite word, um, rough trade. Um, especially in later years when he had felt he had lost his looks and sexual desirability. Uh, Williams' queerness is also very important to his work. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Streetcar Named Desire both include references to homosexuality, as well as other references to elements of his life like alcoholism and mental instability. And he would go on to say, my work is the only way of realizing myself. Uh, Tennessee Williams was one of 34 medals awarded by Jimmy Carter, and I think is pretty much just like an all-around legend. He's one of those names where even if you have not seen one of his pieces of work, uh, which would be unfortunate because uh, it is so incredible, I do think that he's just in the American lexicon. He 
like a lot of the other people we have highlighted, are just behemoths uh, of their crafts and of the culture. Um, when I was trying to think who I would kind of award this medal to, um, obviously the reason he is the 44th president and I am not is because I think Obama already beat me to it and gave it to Stephen Sondheim, who is another prolific theater legend, mm -hmm. uh, whose kind of queerness is, you know, part of their legend, uh, both on and off stage and on and off the screen. Um, do you guys and have, also uh, added a commentary of the American American psyche as well? Okay, I'm just gonna throw something out there, um, and let me know if this is like gay erasure because I'm gonna go with the like using their art to channel their dysfunctional family shit, uh, which is like like a Wes Anderson maybe because Wes Anderson's oh, yeah. daddy issues. <laughs> feature prominently in his work. And I actually don't know a lot about Wes Anderson's personal life. And if I Google it after the show and he had like an idyllic childhood, I'll feel really dumb. But, um, there's I a, a pretty common theme of bad dads. It's like that Mila Kunis movie, bad moms, but it's all Wes Anderson characters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. It feels like a motif. And so, um, you know, but I think to varying degrees, that's something that a lot of artists, do okay i have a better one can we either like cut out what i just said or use this instead oh it stays in fuck i want wes anderson to know that you think his dad was bad <laughs> steve anderson go fuck yourself um <laughs> no i think russell t davies Ooh, solid choice yeah so for those who don't know uh those are missing out on both the joy and the tragedy of life. Um, Russell T Davies, uh, just had a show come out. Um, very different timeline in Britain than here. I think it came out in Britain, like over the winter and we got it in the spring called it's a sin. Um, which is, um, just a story like a coming of age story about, um, young gay men, almost all of whom were closeted. They come moved from their like little towns to London, um, and they're finally starting to like figure out who they are and how to express themselves like in the mid eighties. <laughs> so Brian and I talked about it. It's basically like a horror movie, like a monster story. And the monster is like AIDS getting closer and closer to them. And for Russell T Davies, it's like, he, like, this was a story he was finally ready to tell because he, that was him. Like he was his in generation. his twenties and lost so many people that he loved. Um, and so he, and he, when Christine says that it's a horror movie and the killer like slowly comes into focus, this isn't how it happens, but it's like at one point, like two characters would be talking about going to see a movie and they're like looking at the movie times in the paper. And as they're like moving it, it's like mysterious gay cancer strikes down 20 in New York. Like it's very much like that where you like, you see little mentions of what would be, what would come to be known as AIDS, like throughout it. And then, you know, finally it starts to introduce itself. Um, it makes quite an entrance. Let's just put it that mm -hmm. way. It most certainly does. 
Um, um, and honestly, I'm so sorry to the people of the United Kingdom that they had to watch it over what I would consider to be the darkest winter of my personal life uh, during the COVID <laughs> lockdowns, where we were seeing more people die than at any point during the pandemic. Because if it had come out then, I don't know if I would still be here. Like, <laughs> at least seeing it in the spring when things started to get a little bit better was yeah. like, it was it devastating. Was yeah. Um, you know, every episode, someone had to come and check on me to make sure I was still okay. But I cannot imagine watching something of that subject matter uh, during the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I, I think I would say him because, um, yeah, just taking his own trauma and loss and making, like, devastating but beautiful um, work out of it. Andy's gay, for those who don't know. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah, I uh, I don't really have anything that will add to it, except the only person that I could think is Tony Kushner, but I almost think that Tony Kushner is, uh, you know, a Tennessee Williams of a, of a generation of the future for him. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Russell T. Davies, that's a great example. Thank I you. have Tony Kushner's Wikipedia tab open. Just I was going to kind of mention him in like a a wrap-up of the segment, uh, just to say, like, you know, his AIDS advocacy work, obviously, Angels in America, touches on family dynamics, you know, obviously found and uh, actual um, traditional family uh, forms. Um, It touches on the AIDS crisis. It touches on mental illness. Like, I mean, it really is kind of a a masterwork. And um, like I said, uh, he did a lot of advocacy work uh, for equality and for... um, HIV and kind of, you know, destigmatizing that, especially during the peak of that in the 80s and 90s. So, um, yeah. I mean, Joe Biden, if you are listening, get let's get Tony a medal. He's with us, you know. Absolutely. I know yeah. he'd kill it at the ceremony. I, uh, I went back and read just the script of Angels in America a couple of years ago and just, my God, what a masterpiece. Uh, so I didn't read it. I had Andrew Garfield and Nathan Lane act it out for me. But wow. Did you watch? Did you go to one of the productions? I did. I went to the uh, the one that they just did, like, right, I think, the year before the pandemic. Um, wow. And I was convinced I was not going to make it to part two because I was just like, you never finish anything. And I did it. That's how good it was. Wow. I know that uh, that he uh, worked on the screenplay for the upcoming West Side Story by Spielberg, so it'll be interesting to see what he does with that. Well, let's hope we get the medal before that comes out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> sorry. Um, but yes, um, I am very interested. Um, I know we kind of joked about it offhandedly, but I do kind of feel like um, Joe Biden is not the president that the gay community wanted, but he has like, been a very good ally to the gay community kind of throughout his public uh, life, um, you know, uh, famously accidentally making gay marriage legal by talking about how much he loved Will and Grace and being like, well, I think it should be legal. Um, so I'm very interested to see what his first class looks like and, um, you know, how many, because uh, I don't think it'll be if, I think it'll be how many um, members of the LGBTQ plus community are kind of uh, represented in his first class. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Anything right. bad about Tennessee Williams? Christine, do you want to maybe do, give, give us a little monologue from uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or anything? You love a cat? You love a tin roof? I yeah. do. Rusty? 
no, but I guess since I'll probably never get a chance, another chance to bring this up on the podcast, um, few men in history have ever been as attractive as Marlon Brando in the movie version of A Streetcar Named Desire. I would say, like, that was, like, him bursting into a supernova, and it only dims from there. Because all those movies from, like, I think, like, the 30s and 40s leading up to that. Like, there's that one with that famous gif where he's, like, smiling. Smirking like, and, like, rolling his eyes. Yeah. Like, it's it's un, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it is. Go look it up, guys. Um, um, it's on HBO. Yeah. Is it? Home well, Box I guess, Office? Um, Home Box Office, yeah. Okay. Good Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. Well, then that is a wrap on Tennessee. Um, I'm glad that we got to kind of talk and uh, mention everybody who um, identifies or is identified as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, uh, And like I said, um, I know June is very famously known as Gay Pride Month, but this is Gay Wrath Month. And if you have a problem with anyone and you identify as queer, this is the month to confront them, call them out, and hold them accountable for whatever you're aggrieved by. I love that. Do you have anyone in mind, Brian? Oh, you'll find out. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay. Should we should we provide your Twitter handle now or how how are we doing this? Oh, I'll find them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. All right. Very good. When we come back, the medals of the week. end of the show we know what that means medals of the week okay we've had a, a pretty eventful summer in the united mm-hmm. states and the world christine start us off this is not highbrow at all i would argue it's lowbrow brian would probably say middlebrow but like let's let the viewers decide listeners decide mine surprisingly is gonna go to jennifer lopez and ben affleck so a lot of you guys may not know uh, they are both on the rebound. Um, ben Affleck had this like beautiful quarantine love affair with the absolutely stunningly beautiful but quite boring Ana de Armas that ended in a breakup. And Jennifer Lopez, I still, I'll still stand for Ana de Armas. I think. Oh, she's uh, gorgeous. Yeah, like that was a she's, good. She's got a career. If you're gonna have a summer fling. And I mean, they were trying to like align their stars in Hollywood and then the COVID happened and I think they were left mm. holding the bag and it was like, meh. Um, ben had that embarrassing moment where like someone leaked his video that he sent on Raya, which is like match for famous people or hot people or something. I mean, I'm not on it. So how good could it be? Um, and then JLo had what an engagement that got broken off to a rod um, to the surprise of no one. And, you know, they found each other and it was what they've been doing. In addition to being like almost 20 years older than they were when their engagement ended um, back in the, back in the aughts sometime. Um, It's like they're, they're, they're turning everything on its head. Right. So one of the last things that happened before everyone, like the culture decided they were just done with Ben and Jen was um, the Jenny from the block video, um, which is like 
about how humble and like from the Bronx she is, but then it's like her on a yacht and Ben Affleck is like rubbing her ass on it. But on she's a yacht. real, even on Oprah. That's just her. She's just Jenny from the block. Yeah. Anyway, they went on a effing yacht this weekend and she laid on her stomach and Ben Affleck rubbed her ass the exact same way he did in the Jenny from the block video, which like, it seems to be getting mixed reviews online, but like I liked it because it felt like time is a flat circle. Well, it felt like time is a flat circle. It felt like plastic surgery can do a lot to end the <laughs> march of time, but also it's them like like press pressure. We're we're sort of like reexamining a lot of the like tabloid peak era, um, like how celebrities were treated. Britney Spears being the current prime example. Um, so I think if you look back and you're like, yeah, why were we so hard on Ben and Jen as a couple? Like they were just trying to like be really hot and famous. And so it feels like their way of like, you know how Brittany had that, um, Instagram that was like, may the Lord wrap your mean ass and joy today or something. <laughs> that was like their version of that. Like, Oh, remember this? Like, screw you. So I don't know. I loved it. I, I pr- I'm probably going to be sick of them next week, so, you know, stay tuned. But You're enjoying it while it lasts. Oh, yeah. I do want to bring everyone's attention, though, um, listeners and my fellow co-hosts, that um, a writer for uh, Busy Phillips talk show, uh, Cassie Saint-Ange, I think her, is her name, um, is convinced that Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck are actually reshooting the Jenny from the Block video shot for shot, and that Jennifer Lopez is going to re-release the video for the 20th anniversary. And that's why we've seen the yacht. That's why we've seen them at the Ivy. Like, all of these iconic things that are in the video have all been essentially recreated. So they think that they're doing Jenny from the Block, Jenny's version, and we are going to get that. Is part of this thesis that the entire thing is for show, or are they actually back together and they thought it would be funny... I'm not sure. I, unfortunately, I've not listened to the latest episode of Busy's podcast uh, where they do discuss this is like it. Galaxy but I did see, Brain. I'm losing it. Right I did now. see an Instagram story about it, and <laughs> I have to say, like, I won't be mad. I it, truly, I think if two hot celebrities want to get back together and they want to revisit something that was like pretty drama free. I mean, think about Jennifer Lopez's other relationships. They either ended in divorce. Um, mm-hmm. She had children where like, I'm not saying that kids are, are baggage, but I mean, like you have to like really navigate those relationships carefully as you move forward. And then, I mean, she was with P Diddy and like, do you remember like she was deposed? Like she had to go to court and testify after he had pulled a gun in a nightclub. Like, I'm not saying Ben Affleck is not the greatest man, but he is probably <laughs> not, the greatest man that Jennifer people. Lopez has dated. Right. You yeah. know, like, and I think, or at least like optics wise, like in terms of revisiting. And, um, yeah, I'm all in. If you remember last episode when I was kind of like, like, I like shot off a couple of people that I was like considering, she was right there. Cause I feel like she's beat the game. She's going back and playing her favorite levels now. Mm hmm. Playing the hits. Uh, mine, uh, again, uh, this is Clay Russell with a uh, a signature boring documentary pick. I watched Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage this weekend on HBO Max. I'm dying to see it. Oh, yeah. It's good, but man, it's a horror movie as well. 
Like it was a horror movie to watch it unfold. Oh yeah, I remember watching that that weekend on MTV. Yeah, it does take you back though. It's very interesting because it doesn't solely place blame on the shitty music acts that were playing. Uh, some of it they did say was because it was a baby boomer generation trying to strong arm another generation into uh, their beliefs. And you had that dichotomy of a generation who was, you know, fighting against Vietnam and things like that against a generation who just like had nothing to fight against. So it was just like, let's, as Fred Durst paraphrases, break things. Uh, and what happens whenever you combine those two generations together? Something that that I forgot about that they definitely display in the documentary is just the misogyny of that era of, you know, everything within six months of Woodstock 99 was uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal and Columbine. And just they did a good job of tying those two things together and how on primetime television you would see Girls Gone Wild commercials. Yes. And, you know, you, you, I don't know what it was, but just the nineties, the late nineties might've been one of the most misogynist eras of the United States history. And you definitely see a through, a through line of that continuing on to 2016, frankly, uh, you had from Woodstock 99 from the stage Kid Rock, uh, spokesman of a generation, saying, I do not get into politics, but I will say this, Monica Lewinsky is a hoe and Bill Clinton is a pimp. And you see the audience go crazy for that. And it really does just show, I think that everyone likes to talk about how, you know, the past was was just better than it is now and all that. And you watch that and you're just like, no, like... You know, we all uh, remember that time. We're all old enough for that. And I don't know. I feel if there's anything redeeming about that documentary, it's that the generations past that, uh, Generation Z especially, have have definitely, they have done a better job about uh, not tolerating that type of shit that, that frankly, in 1999, they, they didn't do. Wow. I'm... Almost definitely going to watch it. Maybe tonight. Yeah, it's just uh, don't expect a, a lighthearted uh, nostalgia trip. It's it's pretty rough to watch. But I think it is important because you do see the debate nowadays. And I am going to make a, a tie between this and critical race theory because you do see these people talking about how, well, we don't need to discuss critical race theory because no one is, is racist anymore in the United States. Mm. And, you know, it's the same thing with this, how, yeah, there's, you know, (laughs) everyone, everyone treats uh, women with respect and there's no misogyny or anything like that. And it's like, this documentary is 22 years old and you clearly see how awful it was and how frankly dangerous it was to be a woman uh, being in society, and this isn't in the 1950s, this is 1999. And I think if if we're going to teach children that uh, any type of history is there because it's already been resolved is a mistake. I think that you do yeah. need to teach children like, hey, just because it's in a history book doesn't mean that it's been resolved. Uh, just because Woodstock 99 talks about just... Uh, Frankly, just the assaults and the the threats to 
women and anyone that wasn't white and and wanted to destroy things doesn't mean that that doesn't happen today because it absolutely does. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that it's important to show documentaries like this to to say, hey, you know, uh, just because Martin Luther King spoke from Washington in the '60s doesn't mean that all our problems were resolved. This is ongoing, and we need to continue to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Brian. I think that's the show, guys. Oh, I don't get to give a medal this week? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry, talked, Brian. Wow. So During Gay Wrath Month? Gay Jesus I know. Right. I, I, apparently, I'm, I'm going to be the recipient. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> Um, no, uh, we off mic talked about who should go first and who should go last, uh, when we're giving out the medals and I was like, mine's pretty light. Um, so I definitely feel like Clay should have shown more of his hand because he probably should have closed the show with that. Um, my medal (laughs) of the week is, um, one that I'm very happy to give out. It's, it's light. It's fun. It's exciting. Um, my medal of the week goes to podcast host, TV comedy writer, and Saturday Night Live breakout star Bowen Yang, uh, Mm. who uh, recently made history uh, as the first featured player on Saturday Night Live to be recognized with an Emmy nomination. Um, Over the last year, um, I, along with, I think, most of America, um, not even the Saturday Night Live viewership, um, I really think Saturday Night Live is defined now by what video you see on Instagram or Twitter Um, or God forbid, Facebook, the next day. Um, And I feel like Bowens were always that video. Um, Obviously, most famously with him as the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. Um, I also, I would say in the last couple of months, have uh, discovered his podcast, Lost Culturistas, with Matt Rogers, which is delightful. Um, But um, as like a trailblazer, uh, since we were talking about LGBTQ plus people um, and recipients today. I wanted to kind of tie that in um, and, you know, making history. Um, the race that he's in is a little tight. Uh, it's like seven people from like fucking Ted Lasso and one other guy. So I'm uh, kind of hoping that he can like, you know, pull it out. Like, you know, I'm hoping those Ted Lasso people cancel each other out because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm going to start it. Hashtag get Bowen and Emmy. Let's do it. Um I'm uh I'm all in. Absolutely, yeah. I I actually still remember Bowen and Matt Rogers from the Annoyance uh comedy scene. Uh Christine, I think you spent a fair amount of time there and mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm just incredibly proud of seeing someone like Bowen who Bowen or who, you know, we were in this this basement theater and uh you know, just that type of voice that he has, which at the time just was not viewed on Saturday Night Live or anywhere on network television. And, and, uh, it's incredible to see. So absolutely. Now you can end the show, Clay. (laughs) Trying to, trying to, (laughs) trying to undercut Bo and Yang. Trying to sweep you off the stage. That's right. (laughs) I guess that's it. Now that's it. Is there a secret fourth member that we, we keep leaving out? Uh, Polly, but you know, she can't speak or I don't, I don't let her speak. Mm, Cause she's a woman. Oh, we're policing the voices of women. <laughs> wow. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's exactly Enjoy Woodstock is. 99, grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess we'll, uh, we'll catch everyone next time. That's right. See ya. Bye. Bye.